Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 39, the Kansas territorial election of 1855, an affair of epic proportions involving homesteaders, voter fraud, and armed rebellion. The 1850s found droves of East Coast families packing up their row homes and looking west, to Kansas specifically. But this mass migration was far from spontaneous. New Englanders were bombarded with ads encouraging them to ho for the plains of Kansas. The posters suggested a new life with plenty of cheap land was just across the Mississippi. If the travel expenses were prohibitive, the New England Emigrant Aid Company, or NEEAC, offered to subsidize the moving cost for each individual. Talk about incentives. There was, of course, a reason. Future Massachusetts Congressman Eli Thayer, the head of the NEEAC, was desperate. Northern abolitionists needed to get bodies into Kansas and fast, or the Southerners would. So to keep the new state free of slavery, the NEEAC gave out not only money, but rifles. If Kansas had to bleed for freedom, then at least free soilers would be ready. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today's story is about the fight between Northern abolitionists and pro-slavery Southerners. But we're not talking about the Civil War. Rather, the fight for legislative control of one scrap of unincorporated planes. Before we get into that particular battle, let's delve into some of the history that brought Kansas into the debate at all. 
All the commotion began in April of 1803, when the U.S. acquired a group of Midwestern territories from France, the granddaddy deal known as the Louisiana Purchase. Politicians thought they'd hit gold, but quickly, some of that glitter started to wear off. The question of what to do with these glorious new territories was colliding head-on with one of the most furious contemporary debates in America. The one about the future of slavery. After all, as new territories entered the Union, they'd have to either outlaw slavery or accept it. And that could upset the increasingly tenuous balance of power between northern states and southern states. The Missouri Compromise of 1820 was the first major attempt to address the question and mend the growing rift between North and South. It admitted Missouri to the Union as a slave state, Maine as a free state, and dictated that territories north of the 3630 parallel would not allow slavery. This, it proposed, would keep the balance equal. Of course, tensions mounted anyway. Hence the Compromise of 1850, another stopgap attempt to balance the competing beliefs of the pro- and anti-slavery camps. But instead of outlining a comprehensive plan for the unsettled Plains territories, it presented another series of horse trades for each side. For the North, California entered the Union as the 16th free state, and the slave trade was outlawed in Washington, D.C. In turn, the South was assured that there would be no laws restricting slavery in Utah and New Mexico. And though it was banned in the capital, slavery was allowed to continue in existing slave states. The most egregious compromise for abolitionists, though, was the Fugitive Slave Law, which dictated that Northerners would be legally obligated to return runaway slaves to their owners. Many states, like Massachusetts, were so horrified by the provision that they refused to enforce it. Clearly, these stopgap measures were doing little to address the real underlying issue of the two radically different belief systems warring in the Union. One more bill brought to the Senate floor in 1854 thought it could finally change things. The incendiary bill, titled the Kansas-Nebraska Act, was introduced by Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas. Known for his centrist views on abolition, the little giant had long been a proponent for popular sovereignty interpretations of the Constitution. He didn't care whether slavery was voted to be legal or not, as long as the people were allowed to make the final decision. Douglas's queen was the Transcontinental Railroad. Like many Northerners, he dreamt of what could unfold with easy access to the cheap land across the Mississippi. And a straight shot all the way to California was critical. To get the railroad built, though, he needed bipartisan support. And it would be hard to get Southerners to back a bill that would inherently disadvantage them. Because Douglas's proposed route for the railroad purposely avoided crossing into the South, meaning that it would be giving the North, not the South, new business opportunities in the West, and new opportunities to claim those lands for the abolitionists. This made Missourians, in particular, uncomfortable. To its North, Missouri was already boxed in by free states Iowa and Illinois. 
If the Kansas Territory to their west went anti-slavery too, Missouri would share a border with yet another free state. This was especially unappealing, considering that abolitionists were unwilling to return fugitive slaves. So Missouri Senator David Rice Acheson shot back at Douglas with a compromise. He would support the so-called Kansas-Nebraska deal, which would prepare the Midwestern Plains for a railroad by organizing them into distinct territories. But in return, he wanted a direct repeal of the 3630 decision from the Missouri Compromise, the one that banned slavery from going north. Douglas was stuck. Atchison held the keys to the Southern votes. Without them, there'd be no railroad. So with great reluctance, the Titan agreed to revise the bill, all the while knowing it would create a hell of a storm. Republican senators, the abolitionist party at the time, excoriated Douglas, calling him a sellout. They couldn't believe he'd introduced a bill so lenient on slavery. Douglas pleaded with his colleagues not to fetter the limbs of this young giant, his precious railroad. They didn't buy it. A 64% majority of Northerner senators voted against it. Douglas's appeal to the South, on the other hand, worked. 90% of Southern senators voted in favor of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. When the act was signed into law on May 30, 1854, there was outcry across the North. Social justice advocate William Lloyd Garrison took to the stage to express his fury. In front of an audience of dozens, he burned three things, one copy of the Fugitive Slave Act, one copy of a confirmation that a fugitive slave had been returned to Virginia, and finally, a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Garrison held the flaming documents high before stamping them out into ash, adamant that the North could not adhere to such compromises with tyranny. The strain grew as more East Coasters flocked to Kansas. With the help of organizations like Eli Thayer's New England Emigrant Aid Company, bright-eyed pioneers and passionate abolitionists, or free soilers as they were called, crossed the mighty Mississippi. Thayer and his pioneers knew the Free Soilers would be imperative to ensuring Kansas remained free, especially once the territory became a state. Before the Kansas-Nebraska Act, this wouldn't have been an issue. Kansas was north of the 3630 parallel, so it would have automatically been free. But now, the voters in the territory would decide the issue themselves when they became a full union state. To join the union, they would first have to elect officials to draft a state constitution. That constitution would dictate whether slavery was allowed or outlawed. Abolitionists knew the key to success was getting as many Northerners as possible to move into the Kansas Territory, ensuring the elections went in their favor. Similar organizations sprung up in Eli Thayer's footsteps, including the Emigrant Aid Company of New York and Connecticut and the Union Emigrant Aid Society in Washington. But not everyone they sent to Kansas had what it took to stay in Kansas. 
some New Englanders had never farmed a day in their lives. They weren't cut out to settle acres of the grassy land. And even if the new Kansans had the chops to create a homestead, by no means were they in jovial company. Just across the border, pro-slavery Missourians were gnashing at the bit to hash out their beef. This was not how they'd imagined the Kansas-Nebraska Act would play out. The NEEAC worried that with all this animosity, the new residents might not be keen to stay in Kansas long enough to vote. So, to keep spirits up, it sent shipments of boxes labeled Bibles and Books. Actually, they were full of guns. Sharp rifles, to be exact. These Beecher's Bibles, as they were called, in homage to abolitionist Henry Beecher Ward, were meant to keep border disputes at bay. They didn't exactly have that effect. The homegrown militias started firing on both sides of the Kansas-Missouri border, and Kansas began to bleed. The real battle would come in November of 1854, when the factions would go head-to-head, or head-to-barrel, at the polls. This first election would decide the slavery question for good. And if the abolitionists had tried to rig the game by sending pioneers down to Kansas, well, the Missourians had a plan of their own for election day. Up next, the 1854 election gives way to a vicious era of fraudulent polling. Now, back to the story. By the summer of 1854, the question of whether Kansas would permit slavery had escalated to the point of armament. Tensions were stoked in the fall when the region was instructed to elect a delegate to Congress. The territorial governor, Andrew Reeder, had no qualms about pushing the state election forward. He himself had just been appointed by President Pierce just a few months before on June 29th, and his appointment did nothing to quell the tensions. Reeder was a strong-willed, pro-slavery Democrat. What lay ahead was hardly a civil atmosphere. The effects of the Kansas-Nebraska Act were reverberating from the heartland all the way back to D.C. It was said that after the bill passed, Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas could travel from Washington to Chicago by the light of his own burning effigies. Tensions had been stretched to their limits, and paranoia swept through Missouri before the election. Rumors swirled that more Yankees were coming to Kansas to vote against slavery. So Missourians got moving. They up and went across state lines, arriving at Kansas voting places with one goal, to cast ballots for John Wilkins Whitfield, a pro-slavery Democrat. Residency be damned. A later investigation found that of the nearly 6,000 votes cast, only 2,905 voters were registered. And of the 6,000, 5,427 were for Whitfield. Despite the fishy numbers and the resulting backlash, Whitfield was sent to Congress. But this election was just the prelude. They still had to choose the legislators who'd draft the state constitution. 
Another election day was set for March 30, 1855, and once again, the days before saw Missourians flocking to Kansas like geese. With the stakes even higher, the border ruffians were even more ruthless. First, there was the propaganda, which advertised the requirements, or lack thereof, for legal voting in the territory. One document pointed out that no proof of residency, like a house or dwelling, was necessary. Missourians took their argument one step further, insisting that the Kansas-Nebraska Act, quote, did not specify a minimum length of time for residency. It only required that voters not have any definite plans to move from the state. They were insistent that anyone who was in the territory on Election Day had the right to vote. The subtext? So don't try us. The abolitionist Kansans, of course, did. But pushing back against the ruffians meant things got physical. Remember the rifle fights that were already raging at the Kansas-Missouri border. And there was no shortage of muscle on the Missouri side. One report from Lawrence, Kansas, described an influx of 1,000 ruffians on horseback and in wagons on the day before the election. Another account from the District of Bloomington described how Missourians forced their way into polling places. If they weren't admitted willingly, they, quote, rushed into the judges' room with cocked pistols and drawn bowie knives in their hands. Three judges were told by a ruffian that he would give them five minutes to resign in or die. Given the ultimatum, one judge, Mr. Ellison, said he was willing to stand down. Snatching up the ballot box, he ran out into the crowd, held up the box, and shouted, Hurrah for Missouri! However, his other two compatriots refused. Upon hearing this, Ellison gnashed back. If they did not resign, there would be 100 shots fired in the room in less than 15 minutes. With the help of crooks or by sheer intimidation, Missourians were able to stuff ballot boxes left and right. And with many judges scurrying for their lives, there was no way to rectify the discrepancies. A blatant example of fraud occurred in Leavenworth, a town about 40 miles northeast of Lawrence. The ballot count showed that there were five times as many votes as the town's entire population. Just a day after the election, word began to circulate that Missourians had all but taken the ballot boxes hostage. The results of the election were appalling, but not shocking. The votes were overwhelmingly for pro-slavery candidates. Free Soilers were not pleased, but they hoped that if word spread of the corruption, maybe it could be remedied. They sent letters to northern newspapers and abolitionist outlets nationwide. The ruffians, however, were confident in their win and had no intention of repenting. On the contrary, they championed their corruption. One pro-slavery paper from Leavenworth enthused in its headline, All hail pro-slavery party victorious. We have met the enemy and they are ours. Veni, vidi, vici. The article continued, Come on, Southern men, bring your slaves and fill up the territory. Kansas is saved. Abolitionism is rebuked. 
Her fortress stormed, her flag is dragging in the dust. Only a few papers in the region were bold enough to report the fraud. They feared retribution from the mob. They were right to worry. Missouri's Parkville Luminary was one of those bold few, writing that it believed its own statesmen had stolen the Kansas election. One week later, on April 14, 1855, a mob destroyed the Luminary's office and forced the editors to flee for their lives. Meanwhile, when individual districts filed claims to protest the votes, the investigations were lax. Governor Reeder sat on the fence. He was torn about validating the election. These were, after all, men on his side of the political divide. But there was pressure not to ignore the immense evidence of fraud. Reeder's hesitance to take decisive action was an action itself. Eventually, he certified the majority of officials elected and voided the results in just six of the 16 Kansas districts. The Northerners were not pleased. This was an appalling lack of justice. A representative of the New England Emigrant Aid Company in Kansas wrote back to his boss, Eli Thayer, describing the situation. There was unrest among the Free Soilers who were organizing military units to defend themselves against border ruffians. He indicated that it would be in everyone's best interest if Thayer would send more armaments, specifically rifles. Free Soilers were ready to take matters into their own hands since they couldn't count on Governor Reeder to right any wrongs. Right after he announced the first meeting of the new legislature, he issued a second update. He and his family would be taking a brief vacation from Kansas. Free Soilers scoffed at the governor's priorities. He hadn't even made a plan to choose new officials for the six voided districts. So they would. The residents organized new elections for May without the governor's blessing. The governing body, deemed the bogus legislature by Free Soilers, paid these elections little mind. They were busy preparing to convene in Pawnee and dealing with their own internal drama. Governor Reeder's choice of Pawnee as the territory's capital was a strategic move. It was hours from the Missouri border and the Free Soilers' stronghold of Lawrence. But Pawnee was more than just good for the pro-slavery faction. The good governor himself had turned out his own pockets to invest in the town. He'd purchased land in Pawnee at barn burner prices. When Reeder announced that Pawnee would be the home of the legislature, many of the incoming officials were peeved. They protested, requesting to convene at the Shawnee Mission, a Missouri border town, instead. Reeder declined. He wasn't about to lose out on his investment. So the territory's new officials begrudgingly traveled to Pawnee for four days of session time. Still, in an effort to show their gall, they scorned the housing that Governor Reeder had organized. Instead, they dramatically camped in tents. Even amongst the apparently symbiotic camps of the governor and the pro-slavery officials, Kansas was a mess. But despite the hemming and hawing, the Assembly did manage to roll out legislation in its incredibly brief first session. 
One of its first actions was to dismiss the results of the Free Soiler organized elections in the six voided districts. And give the now vacant spots back to the fraudulently elected pro-slavery representatives from the March 1855 election. Judge Wakefield, one of the new anti-slavery officials whose election was overturned, remarked to his would-be colleagues, gentlemen, this is a memorable day and may become more so. Your acts will be the means of lighting the watchfires of war in our land. He left the legislature disheartened, ironically, on July 4, 1855, a celebration of the young nation's independence. When word of the oustings spread back east, abolitionists were enraged. It was clear that Kansas was in a deep, dark mire of fraud and injustice. Even advocates of slavery were getting frustrated with all the Kansas drama. By demanding the state legislature meet at Pawnee, Governor Reeder was not earning himself any friends. Missouri Senator David Rice Acheson, who stood by nearly any politician furthering his cause, thought Reeder was maiming the governor's office with his personal antics. He insisted that Reeder be removed. The governor was in the middle of a political powder keg, and the territory of Kansas was about to implode. Up next, the Free Soilers make a final bid to take Kansas into their own hands. Now, back to the story. By the summer of 1855, the territory of Kansas had a newly elected bogus legislature, and it was already at odds with Governor Andrew Reeder. Both houses of the legislature passed a referendum moving the seat of the Kansas territorial government to Shawnee Mission. And when Reeder vetoed it, they overrode his vote and convened in mid-July without him. Reeder's hands were tied. The legislature leaving Pawnee meant he'd lose money on the town's investment. But he had to demonstrate he was an honorable and willing politician, especially considering that his opponents, the Free Soilers, were armed and dangerous. Reeder traveled east to meet the resettled government near the Shawnee Mission, which sat just five miles from the Missouri border. But in his absence, the legislature had already taken swift action to rid itself of him. They'd written to President Franklin Pierce, nearly insisting that Reeder be removed from his position. Their hemming and hawing was largely unnecessary. President Pierce himself had met with Reeder in the weeks before and had all but told the governor to ready himself for dismissal. Pierce had no qualms with Reeder's actual governing of the territory, but the constant unrest was a thorn in his side. As Reeder left the meeting, Pierce said, well, I shall not remove you on account of your political action. If I remove you at all, it will be on account of your speculation in the lands of the territory. So when the governor received a letter officially removing him from office, it wasn't much of a surprise. A new pro-slavery governor was appointed, Wilson Shannon, who got along much better with the legislature. But the change in leadership at Shawnee Mission didn't only please the pro-slavery officials, it also confirmed to Free Soilers that even the governing body itself was struggling to keep its act together. They were only further inclined to reject the legislature's, quote, bogus work. 
it was time to up the ante. By late August, the Free State contingent, including many representatives who had run unsuccessfully for the bogus legislature, went to Lawrence to outline their plan of action. And by no means were they organizing by secret candlelight. The Free State created their own legislature and conducted business just like their counterparts at Shawnee Mission. Neither government would recognize the authority of the other. In early October of 1855, Governor Shannon responded by proclaiming that a law and order party had been created in Kansas. His speech waxed poetic about the merits of adopting slavery. It also excoriated the abolitionist efforts of the Free State Legislature. Above all, the Law and Order Party was the Slavery Party, and they'd win this battle by taking whatever covert action was necessary. The Free State Legislature was not amused, and they readied themselves for their most important summit yet. For over two weeks in October and November of 1855, the anti-slavery contingent met in Topeka for their own constitutional convention. The document they drafted banned slavery in the future state of Kansas. It was ratified a month later on December 15, 1855, although it certainly wasn't recognized by the territory's official government. In fact, the polling book recording the votes in favor of this constitution was ripped to shreds by an angry pro-slavery mob shortly thereafter. But it didn't matter. The Free Soilers now had their own government and their own constitution. Next, they'd need someone to lead them. Charles Robinson was the man for the job. Having spent the years before working for Eli Thayer's New England Emigrant Aid Company, his abolitionist efforts aligned with the beliefs of the Free Soilers. He was confirmed as the territory's governor in early 1856. Naturally, the territorial legislature and Governor Shannon refused to acknowledge that Robinson held any political power. But the ongoing ruckus from Kansas was recognized by President Pierce. When he received the Constitution from the Topeka Convention, he denounced it. Still, the Kansas Free Staters would not be deterred. They went around him and pleaded with Congress to consider their legislation. This was a bold move. By subverting Pierce and appealing to Congress, the Free Staters had mounted the issue to the point of no return. On May 10, 1856, the Free State Governor Charles Robinson was arrested on charges of treason. Warrants were out for the arrests of his colleagues as well. And two weeks later, on May 21st, a militia of nearly 800 pro-slavery men took to horseback and rode to Lawrence. As the stronghold of the anti-slavery movement, there was no better place to make a statement. The mob burned two Free Soil newspaper offices, along with a slew of homes and businesses. And of course, they set fire to the home of Charles Robinson. Their finale was to bomb a Free State hotel with a cannon. The city of Lawrence was left smoldering. The Free State's governor still was being held captive. They were not going to let this go. 
On May 24th, abolitionist John Brown and his sons crept into the pro-slavery town of Potawatomi Creek under the cover of night. They'd packed no shortage of weapons from rifles to knives. They weren't just there to intimidate, but to get revenge. Their broadswords were menacing, and they were drawn with violent flourishes as Brown and his group dragged pro-slavery residents from their houses. They hacked and beheaded the men one by one. By the end of the night, five men were dead, and the border ruffians were furious. In response, the Missourians sent men to burn down John Brown's home. Meanwhile, despite the mayhem erupting in Kansas, the Topeka Free State Constitution was edging its way through Washington, D.C. It went to the floor of the House of Representatives in the summer of 1856 and surprisingly passed by the narrowest margin, two votes. The Senate, though, was not so keen. It sent the document back across the Mississippi unratified. And to counter the Topeka Constitution, a pro-slavery constitution emerged from the other Kansas legislature, which had moved to Lecompton. The odds looked distressingly good. Newly elected President James Buchanan was prepared to sign off on it. But Free State Governor Robinson, who'd finally been released from arrest, was ready to stop that new constitution in its tracks. The next official election was held in 1857, and this time, the border ruffians didn't bother to interfere. Free Staters won back some seats in the legislature they'd once deemed bogus. With a portion of control, they were able to push the Lecompton Constitution back to the polls for a vote. When the people went to the polls in January 1858, they rejected the Constitution by a decisive margin of 10,226 to 138. Hot off their victory, the Free Staters pivoted to propose yet another anti-slavery constitution. Unfortunately, it too was ultimately rejected. But the Free Staters kept at it. In the elections of 1858, they finally gained a majority of the territorial legislature, a critical turning point. With this support, they were able to reject pro-slavery legislation and create another new constitution. This document was ratified with haste at a state level and then sent, with fingers crossed, to Washington. In the spring of 1860, the House of Representatives voted to approve the constitution they would admit Kansas to the Union as a free state. Kansas was officially admitted on January 29, 1861, under the governance of Charles Robinson. Free Soilers savored the victorious end to the nearly seven years of civil unrest. However, the victory was brief. Kansas' admission to the Union by no means marked the end of the slavery question. In fact, the events that unfolded across the plains over those seven long years foreshadowed what was to come for the entire country. Less than four months after Robinson took his seat as the head of the state of Kansas, Fort Sumter was bombed by the Confederacy. The Civil War was underway. 
Bleeding Kansas was just the first tear in what would quickly become a hemorrhaging country. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll hop forward two decades to look at number 38 on our countdown, the Whiskey Ring Scandal. Following his Civil War victory, freshly minted President Ulysses S. Grant tested his power by sitting in as a defense witness on a criminal trial. For more information on Bleeding Kansas and its role leading up to the Civil War, amongst the many sources we used, we found William G. Cutler's History of the State of Kansas extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Mackenzie Moore with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>